I have an apology to make, although it's not actually an apology because it's What's not that? my fault. Uh, the, our next door neighbours, Jonathan and Leanne, who are lovely, are having their basement converted, which we hope to do too at some point. So we're not objecting as we, we will inflict upon them what, what, what they're currently inflicting on us. But if you can hear a, a sort of drilling noise, I am four floors away from the pneumatic drill that is taking their basement apart, but it is still up here. So I might mute myself when I'm not talking. I interviewed the, the chief financial officer of Juventus last week. And he could hear it from, from Milan. So I'm, I suspect you'll be able to hear it. Oh my God, this is a, a long running pneumatic drill process then. I reckon they're, um, so they said they reckon it'll take about six to eight weeks. They started, I think we're in week four. Oh my God. Um, anyway, sorry. So that's, that's the story of the drilling. Uh, well, talking of um, infrastructure, remember Cody Schultz from last week telling us about his uh, internet speeds in America? In, mm. in rural America. 1,000 Mbps. We have a follow-up. Dear Wonder Thruple and Chunk, I uh, wanted to clear up any questions you may all have about the inter- internet speeds available where I am. So I live in Perry, Georgia, he says, which is basically a suburb of a small military town called Warner Robins, just outside of Robins Air Force Base, where I work flying on the J-Stars, basically the same as the Royal Air Force Sentinel, as the airborne intelligence officer for the US Air Force. Amazing. He can have whatever internet speeds he yeah, wants. Yeah. Warner Robins is about an hour and a half drive southeast of Atlanta. The Warner Robins metro area has a population, he's done his research, of 190,455. So I guess it's not as small as I was thinking. Perry has a population of 19,000 or so, but it's still considered rural by the US Census Bureau. I pay $70 a month for the Giga Blast plan from Cox, which is 1,000 megabits upload and uh, download. So that's, uh, that's the update that we're all waiting for from Cody. I think I'd like to be part of the Giga Blast plan, to be honest. Uh, there's a lot more from Cody in that email, by the way, but I think we've all decided that is definitely the most important point. Uh, meanwhile, this from Joe Larkin provides us with some important additional information. Dear contributor one, contributor two, contributor three, and the famous Rory Smith. This is only my second correspondence to you, my first being on the subject of bears on the EU mainland, which I appreciate you reading out of the pod. I've been eagerly awaiting another non-football topic that I can contribute to, and alas, it has come up. I currently work for a very friendly Yorkshire-based broadband provider and can What's thus next? contribute some <laughs> provider-side <laughs> information on the variance of broadband speeds. Currently, now, everybody who pays attention to the beginning of the podcast, um, this will be fine. But there'll be others who just kind of wait for us to launch into broadcast mode. Um, but this may well be of value even to you. So check this out. Currently, there are two cabling networks operating in the UK, OpenReach and Virgin. Most providers, your BTs, your Skies, your TalkTalks, use the OpenReach network, whilst Virgin, and mostly just Virgin, use the Virgin network. Most of OpenReach's infrastructure is FTTC, fibre to the cabinet, which means that there is a copper wire from your house to the cabinet near your house, but from the cabinet to the exchange is fibre optic. This usually handles up to 80 megabits per second download and 20 megabits per second upload. You can think of FTTC as the James Milner or Gareth Barry of network infrastructure. Generally industrious, pretty solid and good in most positions they play in, but reasonably limited in terms of the top end star quality. Virgin have developed their infrastructure to be FTTP, fibre to the property, which means all the cabling is fibre optic and can handle up to one gigabits per second. Big woof, he says in capital letters. Uh, FTTP is more of a Juan Roman Riquelme, as it is reasonably rare and lots of areas have no facility for it. But if you can get it right, it becomes the star player of the team. OpenReach are currently rolling this out too, but at a slower rate as they have a more expansive network. So what Rory said about Virgin's 200 megabits per second being the fastest available is probably true in that area. Rory also mentioned that London must have faster internet. In my experience, not necessarily true. This is because it is more densely populated, meaning cabinets have more internet traffic through them, and the infrastructure is more difficult to upgrade to modern cabling and can be difficult to access, meaning that I often have Londonites on the phone complaining that they live in the center of the world but cannot surpass lowly speeds of 10 megabits per second as they are stuck on ADSL the Leroy Lita of infrastructure. Poor little <laughs> All the best from Joe. He says, P.S. I'll be back with another non-football topic I can relate to pops up. It amuses me to think of lots of people in London calling Plusnet and saying that they're in the centre of the world and everyone on Plusnet, which is based in Yorkshire, I'm very proud of it, just going, no, you're not. That amuses me a lot. I like that idea. Just yet another reason not to live in London. And just yet another reason to vote for SPM as the podcast of the year. That's the kind of content you're after. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, FTTC, and Stephen Wyeth, FTTP. Andy Hinchcliffe, ADSL, uh, is hoping to be back with us soon and appreciates 
both your understanding and your kind words of support that continue to send to uh, him. I know him and Nikki very much appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. The food is given to others courtesy of your generosity. This week, it is with thanks to Buffalo Ewan Haig that we draw your attention to an American food bank. Ewan says here in Chicago, many of these facilities are centralized through the Greater Chicago Food Depository. I've heard more than a few letters from fellow Chicagoans read out on SPM, so I'd appreciate you sharing the depository's website, which is www.chicagosfoodbank.org. That is chicagosfoodbank.org. Uh, thank you to all those people who have contributed. How's my drilling noise? I haven't heard any yet, Stephen. Have all right, you heard any drilling? It's a drilling free zone at the moment. Thank That's goodness. Good. It isn't for me, <laughs> let me tell you. It, it's slightly it's slightly less consistent than the plus net broadband speed in the area. <laughs> <laughs> the football is system or circumstance. Rory was uh, on a little bit of a roll a couple of weeks back, wasn't he, with his topic suggestions. So to not overwhelm him and also overly massage his ego, uh, we've returned to another frequent source, which is me reading something that Rory's written and turning it into a subject myself. Well done, me. Our New York Times soccer correspondent had some considered words for his Twitter followers after the Merseyside derby about Jurgen Klopp that have prompted today's conversation. Those will no doubt be recreated in audio form shortly so as to not steal directly, but at least give you the essence. It is this. What happens when a manager identifies with the system to such an extent a strength becomes their primary weakness because it fails to adapt to a set of unforeseen circumstances? Uh, Rory, that's under 280 characters. Wouldn't have needed the thread. You could have just used that. That is all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast uh, via setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube also uh, have presences of us on them. A lot of emails about goats, gentlemen, which proves uh, right. Both those people willing to have the discussion originally, and then, of course, us for having a discussion about those people having a discussion. But first, to emails from Shane Thomas and Declan Hart about Rory conjuring with the terms standing and shipping on last week's pod. Here's Declan to start with. Hello, Kramer, Jerry, George, and Elaine. As a Gen Z listener, I'm going to say, trying to which attempt to be down with the that? kids. Gen Z's, the, they're the young ones. They're the young ones. They are the most yeah. recent yeah. to at least be capable of sending an email. It is my duty to inform Rory that the term shipping does not mean the person using that term is worshipping the person oh. they are using it about. The ship in shipping comes from the word relationship. So, for example, if I were to ship someone, I could do so by shipping Rory and his WhatsApp group buddies, Miguel Delaney and Jonathan Wilson, which would mean I think Rory should engage in a romantic relationship with one of those writers. Oh, However, Rory is wow. right. The term Stanning does indeed come from the Eminem song Stan. So he is partially down with the kids. There's more. Shipping is that you want th those people to be in a relationship. Yes, two people to get together. Yeah. Right. OK. Shane has. I more. apologize. That is that's really embarrassing. I'm very sorry. Greetings, Method Man, Ghostface Killer, Inspector Deck, and Old Dirty Bastard, um, which are Wu-Tang Clan. Wu-Tang. Yeah, Wu -Tang, members. Yeah. He says that we hadn't done hip-hop uh, before, but we've done Cypress Hill, which I think is at least partially hip-hop. Um, Rory was mistaken in how he described what shipping is. It's basically when fans want two characters end to end up together. So, had the term existed back then, watchers of Friends would have shipped Ross and Rachel. Uh, or in football terms, PSG fans are currently shipping their club and Lionel Messi. Mm. But, to avoid Rory blocking me on Twitter says Shane. I agree with his overall point. As mentioned on the pod, it feels as if elements of the US sports world are increasingly influencing the wider football discourse. Their athletes and media are very comfortable interacting with the notion of goats. It also intersects with the natural vernacular of younger people online. There is a knowing, well, usually knowing, hyperbole in how we communicate, hence why everyone is either the best or a fraud, all with a liberal dollop of snark. Everything has to be definitive and unchanging. Once fans alight upon a particular opinion, they tend to cling to it like a baby with its favorite blanket. And that clingy desperation may also be linked to wider society. Whatever your political opinions, I think most people feel like our current era is one where institutions are seen as unreliable and untrustworthy. So because these structures have ostensibly let us down, it's natural to turn to individuals. I suspect that's why superhero movies and the transfer window are so popular. We all need something to believe in. And if we can't rely on institutions, we stan individuals as they're the only ones who can save us. That is from Shane. Incidentally, we do, from the confusion over the term shipping, have gloriously opened up an opportunity for us come the summer when there's no football to talk about, but lots of transfer speculation a new segment, perhaps, The Shipping Forecast. Amazing. Amazing. That is amazing. That is the, that is the single greatest piece of content this podcast has ever produced. <laughs> uh, again, uh, matching or at least bettering low expectations. Well, Shane provided something of a beautiful segue to some reflections then on our GOAT podcast from last week. Mohammed El Salah 
has uh, contributed before. Here is his latest offering. Hello, ketchup, mayo, mustard, and hot sauce. Thank you for continuing to provide consistently excellent football content, coupled with friendly silliness. I had a few thoughts regarding the last part about Tom Brady's GOAT status. To probably understand this discussion, I think we have to discuss the format of an American sports show. What I commonly see on European or Arab podcasts about football, for example, especially those that are made by a mainstream media organization, is that they will have a presenter and two or three analysts, and they will discuss a football game. They may disagree on a few points, but they will agree on most points the majority of the time. American shows, on the other hand, are set up as a debate show. They have a moderator and two analysts who are always there, and they must have diametrically opposing views. An example of a topic of debate would be, what was your biggest takeaway from X last night? And then the conversation would end up revolving about how player A either had the best game of his life, while the other analyst would argue how he was awful. This is good television, but horrible sports analysis. Bear in mind these shows are daily and are two hours plus, so for this setup to be sustainable, the questions and the opinions on the shows have to be more outrageous. All the best, uh, Dr. Mohammed El Salah. Have either of you read Hate Inc., the book by, one of the many excellent books by the Rolling Stones, Matt Taibbi? So that is excellent, and I would heartily recommend it. Um, Us shaking our heads was really good podcast. Yeah, great. So Hugh and Steve shake their heads. (laughs) It's really good. I'd recommend it. But part of it is about that construction, that the the same construction on US news shows, where you have, particularly in conservative media, where you have the kind of the conservative analyst, and then like the wet lib, who's meant to be, who's who's there basically to be owned. And I can't remember whether Matt Taibbi describes that as coming as essentially that format being borrowed from sports broadcasting or whether he doesn't address it at all and it's possible that that's bled into sports broadcasting that the idea is that you don't have a discussion show and there's there's a really famous i can't remember the name of it now but there's a really famous old school uh american talk show on tv that i think was hosted by william buckley who's a sort of famous new republic old style conservative um which was very like deeply intellectual and kind of quite heavy and that's now gone out the window in, in, US, in US political television, I guess, for kind of people shouting at each other. And I wonder whether we've seen the same process either initially in sports broadcasting or, or adopted from news broadcasting in the States into sport, where, where basically the, the analysis and discussion and kind of the idea of having a conversation about something has gone out the window. And what you see is kind of compelling television made by people making increasingly definitive and emphatic statements that the audience can engage with even if it's privately or it's been i guess in the last 15 years socially that you can go on social media and say i heartily disagree with this guy on sports center or whatever and i think we've we we have seen that now bleed into punditry in this country that there is a tendency whether it's in in print or on television or on the radio to or on podcasts to not only read a huge amount into every single action so it is like Every goal that's scored has to be the greatest goal of all time. Every every dominant performance has to be, is he now the best player in the league? The number of times you hear about, oh, such and such is now the best player in the Premier League. You think, well, they've played well for a month. They're not the best player in the Premier League. And also, what does that even mean? And it lends itself, as a couple of the emails have said, to these kind of, the natural conclusion of, of that process is, who is the best athlete ever? It, it's not particularly intellectually valid. When the when the debate about whether Manchester City and Liverpool was the greatest Premier League rivalry started, they'd probably been the two strongest sides for about 18 months. Yeah. And even within the context of football history, Premier League history is relatively brief. So to overlook everything that came before that just seemed utterly bizarre. And you're seeing it now with Mbappe and Haaland, this talk about them basically taking on the mantle of Messi and Ronaldo about 500 goals before they are at that level in terms of their, their, the, the record of their achievements. It, it, and, and we saw it again over the weekend, actually, in tennis with Naomi Osaka winning the Australian Open and suddenly, is she the next tennis goat? Well, possibly. But why not have that conversation in... 15 years time when she's won another 10, 15 Grand Slam tournaments, if indeed she has. I would love that to be a a new franchise adopted by American or indeed British sports networks where you just have a series of hyperbolic statements made and then Stephen comes in and just goes, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel I was born to play that role. It's your natural role. The the Haaland Mbappe thing is is quite interesting. It's It's probably worth a podcast on its own at some point. There's an interview in, in the Telegraph the day that we're recording this with Joao Felix by Matt Law. 
in which Felix talks about wanting to make that a three-way race for the for the Ballon d'Or over the next decade or whatever. And it's a really good interview, great great work by Matt Law to get it, his first ever English language interview. But you kind of think, well, hang on, you, you don't know, like Shola Shoratiri, who the 17-year-old kid that Man United brought on the other day, maybe he'll be the, the natural heir. Because the thing about kids is they just keep coming. There's, you know, there's not like an age, it's not like, well, Mbappe and Haaland are here now, so, so no good players will emerge for the next for the next 10 years while while they duke it out to see who's the best. Like, there might be some kid at Valencia who's, who's going to be better than both of them. There might, In fact, there is a kid at Mallorca who's meant to be, he sort of, he's got about 15 different nationalities, but he's meant to be extraordinary. And it's always, it's always obviously dangerous to kind of predict this, this 12 year old boy will end up being the best player in the world. But you kind of think, well, you can't predict the future. So you don't know if Haaland and Mbappe will be dominant for the next 10 years. What's happened with Ronaldo and Messi has massively contorted our expectations of what happens. Because it's not normal that one player or two players are dominant for this length of time. It does not happen. And it probably won't happen again. And poor old Neymar's been completely forgotten. Well, there's uh, today's news. For, I've, I've not told you actually. So Ed is three and a half, and but you didn't need to tell us that. That's just maths. No. Ed and... is three and a half, and, um... and is the next goat. <laughs> well, no, so possibly not. He's quite quick. He's quite a quick runner. Um, it, it's slightly troubling. He does have the ability. He can get. He's got to turn the speed and get away from me. He can get away from a marker, no matter how tightly you cling to him. And I tend to go man to man with Ed. But the are you t- saying the touch are... tight? Are you saying that the, the future 100 metres Olympic champion is a blonde-haired kid from the north of England? Absolutely not. The, I reckon he could be a distance runner. We know he's not going to be academic. If you try and teach him anything, he just, he just turns, away, turns away and demands the television. So we've decided that he's pretty but dim. But the... Um, no, so I've, he's at that stage where he runs around a lot. He just runs constantly. And because he's often running in wellies on, on muddy ground, as we're in the north, he falls over a lot. And when he falls over, he's, he's insanely squeamish. Like he's got Kate's attitude to blood. Like any, anytime he sees blood or hurt, hurts himself, he has this full on like, oh my God, don't look at Like you're not allowed, if he falls over and bangs his knee, you're not allowed to look at his knee. He gets, re- he's really like, genuinely weird about it. <laughs> but every time he does it and is making a meal out of it, I've, I've, I instinctively said, like, oh my God, you're like Neymar. And so now <laughs> this three and a half, three and a half year old kid, Every time he falls over, looks at me and goes, I'm Neymar. <laughs> I was just wondering how bad the first part of the story was reflecting on your parenting. And now the second part makes it even worse. Really funny. He just it falls over. And I'm, I'm proudly declaring that he is Neymar. So every time he does something good, I'm trying to teach him to say that he's Pablo Imar. So I think that might be, that might be a, a suitable accompaniment. Uh, we have an email from Rory's boss, Andy Das, which usually means Hooray. he's either got something to say that's too important to Ryan and Rory to pass it on to us, or he's going to be rude about Rory and doesn't want to do it one-on-one. So let's find out which it is. Dear knit cap, wool cap, fleece cap, and seven caps. Thank you uh, to you all for your recent GOAT discussion. It is my fervent hope that it is the last such conversation that any of us are forced to endure again. I fully expect to be disappointed. Still, I believe you provided a service, proving that if you can spend the better part of 60 minutes debating the greatest of all time and resolve neither the criteria for defining the label, the shortlist of who might deserve it, or gasp the winner, then maybe this is not a debate worth having. Yes, Tom Brady has won seven league championships, but Zlatan Ibrahimovic once won 12 in 13 years while skipping around between leagues in four countries. Yes, Michael Jordan scored tens of thousands of points in the NBA, but four players have scored more, and nine others have more championship rings. Where does this ridiculous debate end? Is it possible that Rogerio Ceni gets slighted in the round and round about Messi or Ronaldo or Pele or Maradona? The former, remember, managed to score 132 goals despite being a goalkeeper. It's also pointless anyway. Michael Phelps could probably beat Usain Bolt in a swimming race, but not a foot race. Jim Brown could beat Franz Beckenbauer in a fist fight. Sylvester Stallone could beat the Germans in a friendly. And Secretariat beats them all, but is, in the end, a horse. Worst pod topic ever, can a horse be a goat? Uh, But now (laughs) he says, here I am debating myself, which I swore I wouldn't do. And when again, this entire conversation is nonsense. Well done, hot take industry. You have won again. My apologies for wasting your time reading this email. Uh, So that's uh, from Andy. Also a little note from another friend in New York, Adam Bremner. He says he's never heard of Leonidas of Rhode Island. Uh, which goes to show his classical education fell a little short when he was younger. (laughs) Thank you to Adam. Finally, from Henry Upton. Hello, Amo, Amas, Amat, and cetera. In recent episodes, Rory has been trying to decipher a Google-translated Latin phrase. I figured I might be able to provide some help since I'm a doctoral candidate in classical studies and often need to help university students with crap Latin. 
Chiming into a bespoke football podcast to offer my help with Latin is perhaps the most pedantic thing I've ever done. But then again, pedantism certainly comes with the territory I've chosen. Now, I understand Rory has a background in classical languages, so I want to assure him that Google's algorithm, which has invented some truly abhorrent Latin translations over the years on my students' homework submissions, is perhaps tripping him up. Cato clarus atque facetum is both legible and also incorrect, translating to something like a brilliant and witty Cato, although facetum should read facetus, since, as Roy is now likely understanding, its ending should be in the nominative case, yeah, of course, yeah. not the accusative. Yeah. Cato was indeed an orator. Indeed, both famous Catos, the elder and the younger, were orators and politicians famous for their staunch conservatism and xenophobia. I imagine these latter two characteristics weren't quite what the listener had in mind. So perhaps we can put those cats back in the bag and just say, yes, Rory, you're a brilliant and witty orator. Incidentally, Latin for buffalo is slightly complicated by the different species we call buffalo. In America, where I live, these animals are technically bison, a word which is also the animal's scientific and Latin name. However, when buffalo is searched on Wikipedia, it also offers a disambiguation for water buffalo, what it colloquially terms Old World Buffalo. As an American writing to Brits, the Old World appellation seems appropriate. In this case, the Latin Buffalo name would therefore be Boobalus. Uh, feel free to do that what you will. That's from Henry. I have a question for Henry. Boobalus sounds like a proper Latin word, and I can just about believe that Romans, the speakers of Latin, or the largely upper-class Romans, spoke Greek, uh, that they might have come across a water buffalo at some point. But there, there needs to be no Latin word for the American buffalo because they didn't know about them. So why would they have a word for them? That doesn't make any sense. It's like when you see, like, there is a, there's like a Latin word for television, despite the fact that television obviously is a, is a uh, portmanteau word between Greek and Latin. I'm trying to make up for my, my <laughs> academic humiliation. <laughs> uh, the, my degree was worth something. Uh, but you see like Latin words for, for modern things and you think, what? Like, why? They didn't have them. There's no, there's no Latin word for pwned. Do you know what I mean? Because it, the concept didn't exist. So why would you... Someone's beaten me in an argument online. I wonder how you say that in, in Latin. Like, you can't. You can't say buffalo in Latin. They didn't know about them. It's ridiculous. Uh, Henry, uh, any retort to that to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, where, of course, you can send any correspondence of any kind. Um, so then, should a system survive regardless of circumstances. If Jurgen Klopp is his system, as Rory mentioned on Twitter after Liverpool lost a Merseyside derby for enter statistic used by Stephen Wyeth on Five Live that evening, then does that make it more likely he never eschews his philosophy, even if the players aren't in place to deliver it? Because to do so would be, quote, not be him anymore. But it would appear recent events suggest that while his embodiment of a certain style has been a major part of his success, could it now be the chief reason for their precipitous nosedive in the Premier League? And how do other system coaches compare? Is every one of them so wedded to their way that it will eventually prove to be their downfall? Because somehow something unexpected will arrive to try and blow you off your favoured path. But what would it say if you were to give in to circumstances, tear it all up in the face of adversity, undermining the faith not only you've shown in your own philosophy, but also the faith you've asked of others too? So then, system or circumstance? Earlier on, Rory, I um, precede your Twitter thread into one tweet. Uh, was that accurate or would you like to expound? Well, the problem with inviting me to expound is that we would be here for several minutes. <laughs> I think this is quite an important subject, because I think it touches on quite a lot of different stuff. So I must have explained at some point in the past my theory on managerial obsolescence. Kind of shelf life. Well, yeah, so basically it's the idea that all managers reach a point at which the propagation and success of their idea is more important than actually winning stuff. They, they want to be proved right more than they want to win trophies. And it, it, is, it is the Sam Allardyce theory. Well, no, it's, it's, to be fair, this is really harsh. But it's been, the, the one that it kind of occurred to me with was Benitez, who obviously is, is probably the manager, the football manager I have known best in my, in my career. Uh, but it applies to Wenger. I think it applies really clearly at the moment to Mourinho. It, it will apply potentially at some point to Guardiola. I'm not, he might be the exception. Uh, I'm sure it applies to Bielsa. I, I think it is fairly universal that at some point managers get so bound up with kind of defending the way they want to do things that at some point they, they, they kind of transgress into doing that thing even when 
kind of as younger as younger managers, they would probably have thought, well, maybe this isn't working. I better do something different. So I think I, that that's one of my kind of abiding beliefs about football that that, that, that applies. And I might be happy for that to be wrong at some point, but I generally think it holds up as a theory. As long as you stick to it to the detriment of your standing and any pursuit. Exactly. Yeah, I will st- work or career longevity. I, I will stand by it even when it stops being true because I'm I'm completely wedded to it. That is the, the that's the only course of action I can take. And I also think it's important because we are in a moment in football where managers having a system, a belief, a philosophy is generally a good thing. I'm not criticizing that at all. I'm not sort of saying, oh, it's all it's all jargon, it's all nonsense. But it's become, I, th- I suspect, like a, a de facto necessity for managers. And the, the example of that, that me and James Horncastle, podcast regular, all of the podcasts, James, Horn, James Horncastle. Um, never the, other, not, the other five nominated podcasts for the FSA Awards. N- ne- never not on a podcast, James Horncastle. Uh, we talk, joke about a lot. We interviewed Max Allegri in Milan, before, uh, must have been Christmas before the pandemic. So t- Christmas 2019. And had a really nice time with him. He's a lovely fellow, really engaging. Um, and Allegri's, Allegri's big on kind of not believing in philosophies and how the, the job of a manager is... He hates all the stuff at Traverciano, the Italian kind of managerial training centre, where you have to have kind of... Where you philosophize everything, where you have to have a defined system, where you have to have a thesis and you have to learn the ropes. Allegri's view is very much that you, your job is you go in, you see what players you've got, you work out a system that, that works for them, you train them in it, you adapt it if it's not working. It's all very kind of... Um, ad hoc management that he believes that's the skill of, of management. I mean, me and Horney joke quite a lot that since we allowed Max Allegri to have that view published, he has very, very notably not got a job. And I just, we, we think, and I suspect this is it's semi-serious, that that might be because he's going into clubs who want to hear what is your philosophy. And he's saying, well, I don't really have a philosophy. My job is to turn up, work out what, what the players need and then do that. And it might, that might be holding Allegri back. Um, and I think it's important that we examine not only the strengths of the system coaches, which is a phrase I'm borrowing from Paul Tisdale, the coaches who, who have a defined system and they play that system and that is the way they do things. There are lots and lots of strengths to that approach, but I think there are certain weaknesses. And, and I do wonder whether Klopp, who in most respects is a brilliant manager, one of the best two or three of his generation, obviously achieved historic things at Liverpool, whether there are certain circumstances in which his loyalty to his system, his unwillingness to to change it, not radically, but do more than kind of evolve it in some way, is damaging. And the two situations in which I think maybe that idea holds up are his this year at Liverpool and his last year at Dortmund, where the primary reason for the problems were out, was, was out of his control. In, at Dortmund, it was sales and injuries and a historic underperformance in terms of, of XG and stuff like Dortmund were incredibly unlucky that year. And this year at Liverpool, where obviously the problem is injuries. That's why Liverpool are struggling. Dortmund didn't you know, fall to seventh in the Bundesliga and at one point find themselves in the, in the relegation zone because Klopp was suddenly a bad manager or, he, or his ideas were no longer relevant or his, his way of working was no longer valid. What happened was external circumstances for, forced him into a position where he probably needed to change and because of his loyalty to a system, he couldn't change, which is the point I made on Twitter, that maybe in certain circumstances, the system coaches need to have a bit more flexibility and say, that's the way I want to play. But at the moment, because of these circumstances, I can't do it and have it work. And therefore I have to change. The one caveat, the one thing that I would change about that Twitter thread is a point made to me by my friend, Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Rap, also nominated for an FSA award, who texted me and said, the problem that Klopp has isn't that it's not working, it's that it's nearly working. And I think that's really true. And it was the same at Dortmund, that he will look at those at the performances and think, this is close. Whatever's going wrong, is going to stop going wrong because all of the, the all of the metrics are are in are in our favour. All of the kind of the signs that I can see from my players are encouraging. I don't need comprehensive change because this is close. If if Liverpool were playing abysmally, then he'd probably change it. But they're not. This is counterintuitive. But they're not actually playing that badly. Like Stephen, I was at the derby on on Sunday, and Liverpool actually played quite well. They're a bit toothless in, in attack. But they were on top. They created four or five chances, not brilliant chances. They never really opened Everton up because Everton defended very well. But it wasn't a, a dreadful performance from Liverpool by any stretch of the imagination. They're just a bit sure. And I wonder whether, I think Neil's right, the problem isn't what do the system coaches do when it goes completely wrong? Because what happens then is probably they change it because they're not stupid. I think the problem might be more what do the system coaches do when it's not quite working? 
And Klopp's solution, as he said on Sunday, is I try, try and try again. He channels his inner, inner Robert the Bruce. And I wonder whether that's not necessarily the most constructive answer in the circumstance in which he finds himself. Is, is also the problem for system coaches and it's um, an inadvertent consequence of, of their focus, their drive, their determination to do things in a certain way that, that when an entire structure in a, at a club has been focused on, on building towards the system that the coach wants to implement, that it's very difficult to then put the handbrake on when the circumstances change to the point where that isn't all quite clicking as it was or as it should. Because to have a system coach, to be like Manchester City or Liverpool are currently with Guardiola and Klopp, you have to have the, the finances to be able to bring in the players to make it work for them and the infrastructure to support that and work towards it continuously in every aspect, every department within the club. It can't just be a coach's vision. Everybody within the club has got to buy into it. So if, if the circumstances that have presented themselves to Liverpool suddenly rear their head, it must be almost impossible to put the handbrake on and say, right, lads, this thing that we've been drilling into you for the last three, four seasons isn't currently working. So do you know what? We're going to take a more pragmatic approach. We're going to, we're going to sit a little bit deeper. We're going to defend with greater resilience. We're not going to attack with the same intensity. We're not going to press with the same intensity. You can't just switch that off. So ultimately you do have to keep doing it, even if it's not quite working in the hope that it will start working again, because the alternative just doesn't bear thinking about and, and would be catastrophically disastrous because you'd be suddenly asking a group of players who you've been telling to do one thing for the last four years to try and do something different. And, and that is almost certainly not going to work. I think that's probably absolutely right. The, the one slight qualification to it is that I think in the circumstances that Klopp finds himself now and found himself in in Dortmund, I would imagine that you could go to the players and say, look, we're going to have to change something just because of the situation in terms of player availability. We're going to have to do something that that we, you know, the, everyone at Liverpool, I think, buys into the idea and rightly that the reason they're struggling is because of injuries, which is sometimes there's no mystery. Sometimes there's not, not every subject in football warrants reams and reams and reams of investigation. Sometimes the obvious explanation is the explanation. Liverpool don't have any centre-halves, so they're not playing very well. That's kind of, and there's, there's knock-on effects to that, which is that, you know, the midfield's been destabilised and all that stuff, and the, the attack has lost confidence in what's behind it, so they're not moving quite as much as they used to be. And it's, it's but it's all, root comes back to the centre-halves, and it's all, it's all fairly obvious. But I think in that circumstance, Klopp could probably say to the players, we're gonna, and I'm, I'm not saying, I, there was a bit of reaction to that Twitter thread, which was that, it was a kind of it was a hot take that that was kind of turning against Klopp or or was ignoring. There were two things that kind of bothered me. One one was that someone said, "Oh, you, you're ignoring the fact that Klopp Klopp's Liverpool have evolved," which is true. And actually, that is an interesting thing about the way Liverpool are perceived. That you know you still hear this heavy metal football thing wheeled out. Liverpool haven't played like that for about two and a half years. That's not Liverpool won basically every game last year one nil or two one. They, they, you know they they sweep through games. They controlled games. They're not the kind of chaotic team that they were in Klopp's first full season, say, when they were full-on heavy metal football. They have evolved, but the system is the same. The, and particularly the point of the attack has been the same. And I think that's what where they're struggling with a little bit, that Liverpool's attack works if the fullbacks get space and they bomb forward. That's not working as much as it used to be. Teams have not worked out how to stop it, but they have been able to take measures to make it less effective. And I do wonder whether... So the, to me, in the case of Liverpool... It, it, it's different in every situation. Obviously, in the case of Liverpool, you wonder what what maybe would be sensible is maybe you play a two man midfield and play number ten. Just change the way that you maybe play play Salah through the middle. You you just do something slightly different to what you normally do to to acknowledge the extremity of the circumstances in which you find yourself. At Dortmund, it wasn't the same. You know, Dortmund would have needed to be a little bit more solid, or they might have needed to kind of just dig in a bit and get a couple of draws rather than defeats so that the, the rot stops and they could start to rebuild some sort of confidence. It, it's, there's not a kind of one-size-fits-all. And the other thing that I think is really important is that we only ever think about this stuff in terms of attacking. It's always, the, you know, the coaches that are told they have to change, we talked about this before, are the ones who have a, an, an expansive, adventurous philosophy. It's always Marcelo Bielsa has to do things differently if he wants to survive in the Premier League. No, one's ever, no one says, well, maybe Jose Mourinho needs to change his philosophy, his system, because that's clearly not working either. 
maybe Mourinho needs to say to Spurs, we're going to have to go out and attack. We're going to have to go and kind of, we've lost five and six. Maybe we have to go out and actually just go for the jugular and see what happens. And I think the, the best advert for what Steve's talking about though is actually Man City, who tried to change this earlier this season. It didn't work. And after West Brom, Guardiola sat Famalillo and Chiqui Badiristein down and, and said, and Rodolfo Burrell, and said, what are we going to do? And basically what they, what they decided was, we'll go back to what we used to do. Because as Steve says, if you have a system that's baked in to the players and you turn around and say, we have to do something different, the players might think, well, hang on, why? And you have to take, if you don't take them with you, it doesn't work. We'll, we'll deal with some of those things separately because they are all excellent points, but they are... Uh, worth further expounding throughout the, the course of the podcast. It's interesting that Steve used the word pragmatic earlier on. This works as a kind of a micro level discussion um, as a sister pod to that. If you think about managers, the likes of which you just described, Rory, being asked to change in a certain way to be pragmatic, when of course their pragmatism is is actually not necessarily the definition that that person in saying that is is thinking of. But to, to go back to the, to, to the original point that you made about Jurgen Klopp and about saying that it nearly works, that every, everything you, you hear from Jurgen Klopp, particularly after Leipzig, when they won, and he said, we, we, we played in exactly the same way, but this time we took our chances and the goals went in and the result matched the performance. And after a, a lot of the defeats, I think I remember hearing him after the Manchester City defeat saying, we did all the right things and we did it consistently, but it's just that it didn't work out. And so you, you're right in, in what he has said to the media pre and post suggests that he is convinced that even though these, these circumstances are completely unforeseen and you wouldn't expect him to prepare for these in a way that I imagine there are some people who would want every manager to have every plan for every occasion, even if they are completely ridiculous. And as I said, unforeseen, but he still seems to be in that position where, because as Neil Atkins said, if it nearly works, you figure out that the, that the solution is just around the corner. But are we saying today that actually, if you are going to be proactive, you should dispense with your system a little earlier than Jurgen Klopp has, just in a way that would suggest that he would get to the, or get around that corner a little bit quicker? Just, just to add in to that, and, and on the back of mentioning the win over Leipzig, is of course that in that game, Liverpool pounced on a couple of uncharacteristic Leipzig mistakes to take their chances. And that is another thing that's worth bringing into this discussion is the unquantifiable thing of fortune, luck, however you want to dress it up, is that Liverpool, and, and I'm going to be pick my words very carefully through this so as not to infuriate Liverpool fans, had a couple of seasons where they arguably not had luck but didn't have any bad luck. And as Rory alluded to in their title-winning season, won a lot of games by narrow margins. Deservedly so, but they didn't have those moments of misfortune that might have turned those wins into draws or draws into defeats. Whereas this season, that has happened. Even when they've played well, a little bit of, yes, the injuries thing. Yes, the thing's not quite clicking for them going forward. One or two players' levels have, have dropped up, dropped off to the point where they're not quite as influential as they were. But, but fortune comes into it as well, you know, offside decisions, penalty decisions. And there could be, in that respect, a little bit of a levelling out from Liverpool's point of view, that having had a couple of seasons of of registering nearly 200 points across two seasons and not really having any bad luck along the way, that it's all come towards them in a wave this season and there's nothing that you just can't legislate for that. I think that's definitely true. And it, it, it's funny, as you, as you say, it might anger Liverpool fans, but it will also potentially anger fans of other clubs who will, interpret not our listeners, obviously, but anyone who's kind of tuning, tuning in for the first time and expecting to hear more that kind of emphatic opinion delivered exclusively sort of comprehensively it does feel a bit like in fact a, a mate of mine who's a Liverpool fan texted me after the after the, the Everton game and said that he can't remember a period where it where it's felt like so many big decisions have gone against Liverpool not that they've been wrong not that the big decisions have been wrong just that it feels like every single one that might go one way or the other is is somehow not in Liverpool's favour and I think the best example of that is the the offside in the build-up to what would have been the winning goal in the Goodison Park derby where if Sadio Mane is leaning forward by about three degrees, Liverpool win that game. There's no, it makes no difference to the move. If, if Mane's upper body's in a slightly different position, they still score, Henderson still scores the goal. 
but Mane just happened to be standing in exactly the way that he was standing, so he was given offside. You can debate whether that's what anybody actually thinks is offside. But <laughs> and you could also him... debate whether that happens to every club all the time, because you remember if you live in those moments, you remember them much yeah. more clearly than and, other, other clubs and, having those moments. Yeah, but, and, and be uh, careful. Yeah. That, that's where you, you, you have to plot your way very carefully through the luck discussion, because yeah. it, it, by a game-by-game basis, all teams, all fans can pick out moments of... of of bad they're very quick to jump on moments of bad fortune yeah so the point with Liverpool is just to emphasize that they probably had more than their fair share of not having bad luck yeah. over two seasons and now that balance is being redressed a little bit I think that's a really important there's a really important distinction between being lucky which is obviously sounds pejorative but also not being unlucky and I think that they're not the same thing and it felt I think certainly there's, there's, there's no question that last year Liverpool were not unlucky. They, that's not to say they were lucky, but they were not unlucky. And I think that's, in, it, as Steve says, in all of those kind of narrow, tight games that Liverpool came came out on top of because of their, you know, their their energy and their hunger and their their mentality or whatever you know whatever it might be, they were not unlucky. Had they been unlucky, then they might not have won all of those games. The that that all of that's a really good sort of way into what I think is maybe the risk that all the system coaches have when things are not quite right, not when they've gone badly wrong, when they're not quite right, is that they will interpret things as they want to interpret them. So Klopp will see in this case, will see Liverpool's performances, basic underlying performances being sort of fine and think there are, I can see the signs that I want to see. I wonder whether the risk is, the danger is that you're not seeing the things that you don't want to see, that you're, you're lending much more significance, much more credence to the things that reinforce your pre-existing beliefs. And as a student of language, Rory, you will know that the difference between being lucky and not being unlucky is litotes. And it's a very important distinction to make. And it's an excellent, excellent an extraordinary word. Well done. I remember litotes. <laughs> and, and now you can Google it just to make sure that I'm right, because I'm just checking, never I'm quite checking. sure. Well, uh, uh, whilst he checks that, uh, one assumes that system coaches and those around them spend an awful lot of time looking at the data and trying to assess results against data. And Jurgen Klopp will be looking probably at, at, at that and not seeing a huge amount of difference between the data from this season and from last season. But then again, there are other unquantifiables, you know, individual mistakes. You, know, you can't legislate for, for a, a couple of howlers that Allison's had recently, for example. And we've already mentioned, you know, a couple of players whose, whose individual concentration levels perhaps have, have dropped off just that, couple of percent which is can be so detrimental when you're so heavily reliant on the system and and the other thing that Liverpool don't have that Manchester City do have is those deeper resources to be able to have the players in reserve to replace those whose level might have dropped off a little bit who, or who might be nursing injuries and one of the big reasons that that Manchester City have been able to turn it around so spectacularly as well as going back to what was working well for them in the past is, is to have the players at their disposal to make sure that that can work. And I know also at Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said just a couple of weeks ago that one of the benefits that they've had, which is enabled to keep them second in the Premier League, is that they, they haven't had to manage injuries this season. They haven't had to be cautious with player selection until very recently with Paul Pogba's injury. They have been very fortunate that as, as a general rule, they've had a full strength squad to select from. They haven't had to be nursing people back, bringing them back in a little bit sooner than they might have otherwise done, which hasn't then cascaded into further injury problems. So he, he is far from a system coach, of course, but that is a dem another example of how the system can become disrupted. It's interesting that you mentioned Manchester City because, of course, last year, one of the reasons why they were so far off the pace was because they had their own issues at centre-back. So for all these system coaches that, that preach about attacking football, it is interesting how often that can be undermined by a lack of a position which they wouldn't necessarily be associated with, even though we'd probably suggest that it's obviously vital because of the, the, the general system of the team relying on everybody, not just uh, those attacking players. Have you, have you been able to Google Lytotis? You are, are we, correct. Right, it good, is, um, okay, just checking that. But what I was going to say about the centre-back thing, and this is slightly off-topic, is that the main thing, obviously, is that teams function as teams. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter where the, the losses are. I think if you have concentrated injuries in one position you're going to have a problem. So that might be at centre-back, it might be in central midfield, it might be, it might be up front. I think in, in the modern game, 
players are sufficiently maybe versatile that in the yeah, wide it, areas exactly the adaptability doesn't, yeah. doesn't really cover you at center back because you can be adaptable pretty much everywhere else apart from goalkeeper obviously but you cannot cover excellent center backs and the way that particularly Manchester City play having a weakness at center back probably that and the the pivot position having weakness there is more damaging than anywhere else because they would be able, with the versatility of the players and their system, be able to cover those losses a little bit yeah, easier. I, I think it's the central areas. I think it's centre-back, central midfield, and in some teams, the number nine. I, I, I hesitate to say strikers now, as I think in most cases, most clubs have a have a nominate, sort of a nominally wide player who could probably play through the middle if necessary. And most teams are kind of familiar enough with the idea of having a, not a false nine, but kind of a, a different type of striker that they don't, you know, you don't need a battering round forward anymore. I think if it is interesting that both City and Liverpool, City didn't fall apart to the extent that Liverpool have, but, you know, struggled badly when they had had a severe weakness in central defence. But I think equally they, they maybe would have struggled badly had they had the same number of injuries concentrated in central midfield. The, the issue with Liverpool isn't necessarily the number of injuries they've had, although I think they've had probably more than than might have been expected and more than others. It's the fact that so many of them have been in one area of the team. That's the real issue. If they'd lost Virgil van Dijk and Sadio Mane, rather than Virgil van Dijk and Joe, Joe Gomez, I suspect they would not have only won two of the last 10 games because they would have been able to kind of diffuse the impact of the injuries because they, they are, they've been through 18 centre-back pairings. It's it's become it's destabilized the whole team effectively and i think it's that concentration of injuries that's maybe not given enough credit that has has ground the system to a halt and, and the building number as well because clearly at the beginning of the season when they lost Virgil van Dijk they were able to keep on an even keel for quite a long time it was only really when was mid well. mid end of december where everything compounded to such an extent that there was no cover whatsoever and then one thing led to another and you mentioned the allison mistakes is that that is not necessarily intrinsically linked to these issues we are discussing, but it is in terms of a an overall kind of narrative. Well, it, it, these these things come out of a feeling of insecurity around you. I think I think they can be linked because that, that's part of the system. And when the system starts falling down, other components within it aren't functioning in the way that the way that they should. And and of course, whereas Manchester City were able or last summer went out and spent money to solve that weakness at, at central defence, and and they've managed to cope just fine without a 40 million pound central defender who's barely kicked a ball for them this season in Nathan Ake. Liverpool, by contrast, perhaps reacted a bit late in the January transfer window to solve that problem because it they didn't react until there was one more injury, wasn't it? it. One more domino fell before they finally thought, oh, hang on a second, we're going to need to... Whereas if they'd acted at the start of the January transfer window, who knows that their, their situation could be very different. So again, that all comes back to this thing of like, you've got to have the infrastructure in place to be able to support the system. And the greater the, the resources you have, the more likely you are to be able to support that system in the longer term or when small components start misfiring uh, in Nathan Ake's defense he has been injured a lot of the last couple of months so that's that's the reason why but at the beginning of the season he was playing in both center back but, and left back so yeah, he yes, has it, contributed but the point the point remains they don't miss him exactly yeah. the re- point remains absolutely valid because it is one and it is not two three four five and then the midfielders who were who yeah. would then potentially cover at center back as well because Fernandinho played center back a lot of last season and and that was a big issue that was one of the reasons is that, that because of Fernandinho not being in the center of city's midfield last season that was one of the issues that they had is they didn't have cover for him when he was covering for somebody else but both literally in terms of personnel and also positionally in the way yeah. that play developed against them absolutely right I, I want to um before we go on to the Manchester City example of going back to the system if you like and it working which is probably a reason why Jurgen Klopp and others stick to their systems because they see it working elsewhere I just want to talk about Jose Mourinho because he um after their fifth defeat in six games uh, at the weekend when they lost to West Ham, he said, our coaching methods are second to nobody in the world. So here is a man who is very much sticking to the philosophy that he has successfully stuck to in the past, to the significant outcry of quite a lot of his Spurs fans. They have enough attacking ability. They have good enough defenders to be able to open up a little bit more, they say. So what do we think about somebody like Jose Mourinho, who's so determined to stick to his path, his chosen path, his only path, 
then it may well lose him his job because Rory, this goes back to what we said at the beginning, to their detriment, their greatest strength as he sees it might end up being their chief weakness too. Mourinho is doing his best and I'm really grateful to him to, to bear out my theory that, that he, has, he has reached the point while still in a really high profile job where all that matters is his ultimate vindication. He will stick to what he's doing regardless of its results because he needs to he feels the need to have his methods vindicated. I think Mourinho's getting away with it a little bit because Liverpool are in, su in such a slump that there's less focus on Spurs just of the kind of hierarchy of, of needs of, of, of football clubs with big fan bases. And also the kind of un the, the, the fact that Liverpool's slump is much more, much more unexpected, although perhaps more logical. But it's interesting that there is all, we, we only ever think about philosophy as being something positive. We, we never think about it as being something negative. Mourinho has a philosophy of caution and it's better not to have the ball and counter-attacking and winning and all that stuff. That's all Mourinho's philosophy. He might not play kind of the Bielsa-style football, but he still has a philosophy. And it is evident that that philosophy is not working. And you can, without question, make a case that Mourinho's, it would be in Mourinho's interest to say, to recognise that his methods aren't working and to say, we need to do something different, whether that's playing a different formation or a more attacking lineup or trying to, to change the emphasis of how Spurs play a little bit, to say that we, we need to change something. Because he doesn't have the same sort of apparent explanation as Klopp does because Spurs don't have Liverpool's injuries. They do have some injuries, but they don't have Liverpool's injuries. So you, you kind of look at, it, look at it and think, well, Mourinho should be changing something. But because Mourinho is, is defined as pragmatic, in the general discourse, no one is quite sure of what you suggest. What do you suggest when a pragmatic manager isn't getting results? Because they can't be more pragmatic, because they're already pragmatic. And that's our solution to everything. Whereas, as we have discussed previously, pragmatism for Mourinho would be saying, this defensive approach isn't working. We need to go out and be much more front foot. That is the pragmatic thing for Mourinho to do. And, and he is the archetypal coach who we discussed, I think it was last week, when we said he, he is the one that comes in and says, regardless of the strengths of these 25 people, we're going to do things the way that I like them to be done. And what's even more extraordinary with what's going on with, with him and, and at Tottenham this season is that you look at how they were playing at the start of the season when they put five past Southampton, seven past Ludogorets, six past United at Old Trafford. In fact, they scored... 13 goals in in two games at one point early on in the season yet for some reason suddenly the handbrake went on I, I wonder whether it was a consequence of that that three all draw with with West Ham where suddenly the, the the problems with playing that entertaining more expansive style of football were at least demonstrated to Mourinho in that sometimes the other team also score lots of goals because it, that, that seemed to be the moment in which they started winning games by narrower margins. They had that success over Manchester City, which would have felt to Mourinho as a vindication of his methods when they beat City 2-0. And, and, and then they've not been the same since. And it's extraordinary to me, really, that you've had that experience during the course of a season when you're playing like that. Things are not going well when you're trying to be pragmatic, yet you don't return to what was working so well at the start of the season. It's like a real digging in of the heels, which I can't get my head around. That, that game against Manchester City, and I think the, the, the North London derby against Arsenal, was, it was a, a Mourinho fever dream. It worked perfectly. Yeah, yeah. It was the count, perfect counter-attacks. It worked to a certain extent against Southampton as well. And you look at the teams that they're playing against and how it works against them. He's probably relying on the memories of those games to to steadfastly stick to, to what he knows. And just, just to mention Southampton, the, the, yeah. one of the reasons you could say that those two nine nils happened was because Ralph Hasenhüttl has, has drilled his team into, into a certain way of playing to such an extent that when they realize that this is going in a certain direction, that things need to change, they are so drilled, they are so determined to keep pressing, they are so determined to, to, to go at 100 miles an hour that they're completely incapable of realizing that that might make a three, a five nil, nine nil because the spaces remain and then they go down to 10 men early on, the spaces get bigger, and yet they have no idea how to plug those gaps. Yeah, the fact that the fact that Southampton under Hassan Huttler, who's, who's overall done a brilliant job and has been, you know, a, a massively welcome addition to the Premier League, and and you know, has I think is broadly well well beloved by Southampton's fans, and most people would say he is, you know, he's very clearly an extremely good manager. The fact that they've been beaten nine nil twice in eighteen months does suggest that when 
if Klopp is is not responding, is not if Klopp's not willing to change to long term circumstances, mitigating mitigating against what he wants to do, Hassan Huttle is very clearly not able to respond to short term immediate circumstances, mitigating against what he wants to do, and he's not prepared to say, we've had a man sent off inside two minutes to Old Trafford, we probably need to sit back a bit, and I think that. It sounds a bit dismissive, but I, I wonder if at a team like Southampton, that's basically okay, that you can, if your expectation is, if a good season is finishing eighth, if, if you finish eighth in the Premier League and most of your fans will be like, that, that's a really good season, we've done really well there. I wonder if you can afford to be a lot more obstinate in your defence of your philosophy. And the best example of that, I think, is Bielsa, who is, Bielsa is, is as was probably immediately apparent from the st- moment we started talking about this, Bielsa is kind of the, is the paradigm of the system coach. His system applies regardless. They play every game, Leeds, just as Bilbao or, you know, his Argentina team or, or Marseille. They play every game as though it's exactly the same. I, I remember I was at Old Trafford when Man United beat them 6-2. And somehow, despite losing 6-2, you A, came away with the impression that Leeds played quite well and B, left the game because of the way the game finished, which was with Leeds pouring forward as though it was one all and they were going for a winner. You, you left the game almost uplifted by Leeds' performance, which is really bizarre because they'd been beaten 6-2. But Bielsa is the ultimate example of a manager who just won't change the system. That's just his system. He has complete loyalty, complete faith in it, that over the long term it will, it will, prove, it will prove successful. And I wonder if that is fine and admirable and ideal at clubs where the expectation is not necessarily that you have to win things at the end of the season, that... If, if what you're essentially doing is, is trying to play the best football you can to, to, to entertain the fans and to maybe prove a point and to kind, of, to, to kind of win points for artistic impression almost, then it's okay. The problem is if you are a club that demands success in the form of big shiny trophies and you remain steadfastly loyal to the system, even when circumstances change around you, that's when you maybe are more... There is more, more kind of pressure on you to change to get the results that will deliver the trophies. If Chinch was here, he would talk about Leeds and Bielsa from the point of view of how remarkable the way that they've played this season is on the basis of the fact that they have done it with championship players. Mm. That shows you how well Bielsa's system can work regardless of the resources at his disposal. The test to that is how sustainable it is in the longer term without strengthening your resources, without, without adding a higher calibre, gradually adding a higher calibre of player because teams will work it out over time and it'll be harder to implement unless you can upgrade. And that is borne out a little bit by the results this season from the point of view of, that they have veered dramatically from one way to the other fantastic wins and inexplicable defeats and that's been something perhaps that's just held Leeds back ever so slightly this season and very interestingly bearing in mind what you said Rory about the, that feeling after the the 6-2 at Old Trafford I spoke to Stuart Dallas last week and we were talking about the fact that Leeds are these great entertainers and the narrative that they swirl around in is this feeling that they're the feel-good factor in the in the Premier League, regardless of the results. And, and he made the point that we, we don't just want to be entertainers. It didn't feel like to us after losing 6-2 at Old Trafford that we had pleased everybody by our method. That is not how we as players feel. There will be at some point, one imagines, player pushback. To an extent, the change is anything I do not know, but player pushback to say, well, you know, this is all very entertaining, it's all very good, but I like winning. And I imagine that Marcelo Bielsa likes to win as well. So this is not to say that Bielsa doesn't, but there might be a a moment at which, not a reckoning because that's too strong, but a, a feeling of, is there something that we could do to to just maybe win these odd games where entertaining and not. And that, that, that was a feature again of what happened with Pep Guardiola when he sat down with his management team, as you mentioned earlier on. And this is where we'll finish the conversation is it, he got the player buy-in as well. He said, this is not a team I recognize. Let's go back to what we used to do. And the players bought into it, which of course is easy to do because it was a successful way of playing. And clearly that has manifested itself in this extraordinary run of 18 
games in a row winning. It's, it's well, it, On Pep, it, it does sound very kind of snippy and a bit dismissive and it's not meant to be, but it's very hard to separate. In fact, it's impossible to separate and there is no reason to separate what Guardiola has done from the resources he has done done them with. That, you know, if you look at the, the City bench... And, and he says that too. He says, yeah. what is the main reason that I am successful? I have good players. The, if, you, if you look at the City bench against Arsenal, no, no other team in the country can compete with that. They just can't. So it's, it is no surprise that the team with the deepest resources has come out on top in the condensed season that was always going to be defined by how deep your resources were. And that doesn't absolve Liverpool of blame from not competing with them better or Spurs or Chelsea. Or I think it's no surprise, actually, to be honest, that United are, are kind of the, the team that have gone closest, just as Steve says. They've also got really deep resources. There, there's no, they're not their squad has not been put together quite as intelligently as Manchester City's, and maybe that's the difference. But they've got, Man United have a lot of very high-quality players. You know, they can they can run a squad with three or four players who are paid a lot of money, who would get into quite a lot of other Premier League teams, as we, you know, we've seen with Jesse Lingard at West Ham, who just don't play, just, just sitting there, just not playing. Um, even people who've been dismissed as kind of jokers, like Rojo and Phil Jones. You know, would Phil Jones would, if fit, play for probably 10 teams in the Premier League. And he just, he just doesn't play at Manchester United. He's just, just sat there. So it's, it's no surprise that this season has been a test of resources. But I, I do think it's interesting that, that Guardiola tried to change. It didn't work. And he went back to, to something that was much more familiar to the squad. And he tried to change, would you not say, because he knew it was a condensed season. He was also almost trying to reserve that energy by playing in a slightly more, forgive the use of the word, pragmatic way. Um, controlled. Playing, it was controlled a more controlled way. way. In yeah. a more controlled way by playing two pivots, which he doesn't do very often. And he did that and it, it didn't work. Yes, they defensively got better, which might have some residual effect on everything that's happened since then. But he decided that even though that that was the, a kind of a thoughtful approach, bearing in mind how tired, if he was to play his normal way, the team would be come March, April, when everything was really important. There is a sense that even though it didn't work and they it, changed it, it might have still had it might enough have had of value. a benefit. And the, in terms of Bielsa, where, where the parallel with Bielsa is, it will be interesting if Bielsa stays, which he seems to have hinted that he will, and if Leeds can spend money, which I think they probably will try to do, if Leeds could go and add... They've been unlucky at central de- in central defence this season, Leeds, because Robin Cocker has obviously missed the last couple of months, and Diego Llorente, who I think is, is probably the player that was meant to kind of hold everything together, has barely played. Saw him play for eight minutes at Newcastle, and th- that, I think, is like his second appearance of the season. He's just not played at all. He came on early at Chelsea at the start of the season and played a majority of that game, but he that, that, that game at Newcastle was the, the first and only one he yeah. started, isn't it? And it will be interesting. So if Urente gets fit, if Koch comes back to fitness next season, if they can maybe add another central defender of high quality, maybe add someone to give a bit more support to Calvin Phillips in the middle, maybe someone who can, who can score goals alongside Bamford. It will be interesting to see what Bielsa can achieve with his philosophy, his unchanging, unyielding philosophy, his system, with, play, with, with a squad that has a little bit more stardust, a little bit more kind of undisputed Premier League quality in it. There's two or three players there that have been fantastic. Rafinha is is going to cost someone a huge amount of money at some point because he is absolutely magnificent. And Rodrigo Moreno is brilliant to watch. He's re- In the same way as Thiago is really nice to watch. Just watching Rodrigo, someone, a player so elegant, so at ease with the ball, is a real pleasure. And he's been a sort of underrated star of the season, I think, Rodrigo, in terms of just that sheer artistic pleasure of watching someone who's really good at football. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with Leeds if, if they can have this system that doesn't change and that is at the moment a little bit up and down. If you do that basically with a Premier League quality team, that would be, that would be very interesting to watch. And if they can do that, then that gives them the opportunity to, to get the consistency in terms of of back to winning back-to-back games because they've lost back-to-back games more often than they've won back-to-back games this season. So that will be the really fascinating insight as to how quickly a, a system coach can become long-term effective in the Premier League with the right resources if Bielsa gets them. Better resources, better players, higher expectations. Then we're into the other part of our conversation about it mattering more, whether you succeed with your system and whether you're able to 
protect yourself from those unforeseen circumstances. Um, So thank you, gentlemen. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. Normally, this is when Andy tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel-worthy details removed. But owing to Chinch's enforced absence, we have another one sent in by a listener. So welcome to SPM, Ryan Williams in Chester. Dear Bill, Bob, Joe and Ronnie and your significant others that occasionally make up the boot room. I am sending over my first ever correspondence to tell you a soccer story after said memories came flooding back following the latest soccer story. When I was about 11, we went on holiday to Dubai. My mum worked in travel at the time and we got to experience some unique holidays, but this one was pretty special. There was not only a water park on site, I, like you, Ryan, would be remembering the water park above all things, but more importantly, there were three or four small football pitches. One day, my uncle and I were kicking a ball around on the pitch when a few bodybuilders, or at the very least gym buffs, challenged us to a match. Even though my uncle had played for his county, this would not appear to level the playing field against three grown men we had never met and were all absolutely huge especially given that I was 11 and my uncle is only five foot six. We played and had a bit of a laugh before mum beckoned us to the restaurant. The gym buffs said that they were keen to play again tomorrow, they said in their broken English. We accepted but planned on returning with backup. We had gone on holiday with a couple of my mum's work colleagues and their partners and despite being a big Liverpool fan I had no clue who they were other than just Scott and Wayne. Nice blokes. Turns out there were Scott Guyatt of Chester and Wayne Hatswell of the single greatest own goal ever scored. He was also at Chester at the time. Sidebar on the own goal. It was for Forrest Green in the, in the FA Cup, I think in 2000 against Morecambe. The ball came back to him. He's about four yards out. He attempted to clear it, smashed it into the top right-hand corner. You may well remember it. If you don't, Wayne Hatswell, own goal is all you need to Google. Back to Ryan. So he went for a kickabout. But on the way, Scott realised that we were still a player short for a five-a-side game and said we needed to get someone. Mum was no good. And my brother was only six, so likely he meant someone a little more useful than that. Scott returned from the hotel bar with someone who could do a job, who I was expected to know. So a guy called David joined the team, and we went on to play the bodybuilders who would have no clue of the skill and power of two lads who played in the English conference. Dave was our keeper, although he seemed to know his way around the pitch, and without ever really breaking sweat, he took the proverbial out of everyone, even generously laying me on for two or three unmissable goals. Being a little embarrassed, Team Jim decided that they were no longer happy with an 11-year-old scoring time and time again against them, so tackles started to get a little rougher. And when one big fella went in for a tackle that now, some 20 years later, would have been a straight red card, Scott, Wayne and Dave were not too impressed. Everything got a little heated and I learned some really interesting words to take back to school on my return home. Not the ideal end to the game, but it did teach me that no matter the level, some players just play to win, especially David and Wayne. They were very keen. Later, we saw Dave down at the restaurant with his family and they politely waved and said hi. Only then, Jay, another of mum's colleagues, partners and a huge football fan, but who wasn't around when we were playing, turned to my 11-year-old self and said, how the hell do you know Dave Unsworth? (laughs) Uh, I return home to tell my friends that story only for them to not believe a word of it. Not sure Unsworth's agent would have been too keen on it if camera phones were around at the time, but let's just say it was a cracking holiday. Uh, that is from Ryan in Chester. Keep your correspondence and indeed your soccer stories coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and view as we humbly ask you to continue finding room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Could we not get Chinch to, to, to get Ryan in touch with, with Unzi? Is that not possible? We should reflect on that holiday. Although does Dave Unsworth want to reflect on that holiday? It sounds like it might have been slightly inappropriate for an 11 year old. I mean, to be fair, Dave Unsworth may not remember. It was probably <laughs> less significant to David Unsworth than it was to anybody else. I was actually just checking if I've got David Unsworth's number. I don't. Um, that's a lovely story. I enjoyed that. This is, this is a rich vein, isn't it? We're doing well here. Uh, so please, yes, please, we need more. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Stephen has had to leave us uh, to go to um, facilitate a Zoom call for one of his should children we, that we, he's homeschooling. Should we just talk about him? We, well, the one thing I did want to mention during the pod but then forgot about is, did you notice that when you were uh, saying something of great value, he just left, yeah. went into the ensuite bathroom next to where he was broadcasting from to, I would imagine, spend a penny whilst mm-hmm. all the time keeping his headphones on and listening to you so that he didn't miss <laughs> any content. He sheepishly came back out of the toilet with just trying to untangle the wires that he had left attached whilst he was going for a wee. He's a, he's a man dedicated to, to listening to my thoughts. I, I appreciate that. I expect all of our listeners to go to the toilet with, that, with me in their ears.